0: Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Open your Bible, navigate on your device. Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. The topic we find there, a moment of silence is observed in heaven before the judgments of the seventh seal begin. The title of our message, A Hush to Judgment. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we're blessed to be in your presence We anticipate, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will teach us things from your word, from each other as we uh, interact with one another in fellowship, from your word itself, Lord, as we just read it in front of us. You are a God who desires to communicate and to communicate love and grace and mercy. Many are here today downtrodden and depressed, discouraged, We pray that you administer, Lord, hope and strength to them. We want to understand this word, Lord, but we don't want to just know the future. We already know enough about the future knowing you. We don't have to have the details. What we want to see, Lord, is how in every way you continue to reach out to mankind. Whether through grace or through wrath, Lord, it is your desire that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And so, Lord, we pray if there's anyone here this morning, and I'm sure there is, who doesn't know you, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and righteousness and of judgment to come, that you would free their will to receive Christ as their Savior, that they would do spiritual business with you. Now, guide and direct us, Lord, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. When FedEx employee Chuck Nolan's plane crashed, he ended up stranded four years on a deserted tropical island. Wilson the volleyball was his only companion. 45 minutes of Castaway's 143-minute runtime has no dialogue. Silence was almost golden for Tom Hanks, who was nominated for an Oscar. Silence can heighten anticipation. Do you hear that? One character will ask another, I don't hear anything. That's because everything's gone quiet. And King Kong is about to jump out of the forest and eat you. The mother of all silences is going to happen in the future great tribulation. Verse one, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. If ever a pause could be called pregnant, this is it. When the about 30 minutes is up for three and a half years, the worst of God's wrath will be felt by the inhabitants of the earth. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you observe the silence. And number two, You observe the scourging. Let's take a look at the silence in verses 1 through 5. It's become popular to categorize the revelation of Jesus Christ, this book we're studying, as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic is a genre of literature that is filled with allegories. It isn't meant to be taken literally. The revelation is not in the genre of apocalyptic literature. In chapter 22, verse 18, we read the revelation is referred to as the words of the prophecy in this book. Prophecy is an entirely different genre from apocalyptic literature. Prophecy is to be taken literally. If the prophecy is told in symbols, the Bible will define those symbols for us. Now, I only mention this because um, some of your friends and uh, you know other acquaintances at some point will say... Uh, oh, hey, the revelation, it's not to be taken literally. Nobody really knows what it means. It's in this genre of apocalyptic literature. So we don't, it can mean just about anything. Uh, but it, it's not. It calls itself a prophecy. And uh, it, it's to be taken as a prophecy. In fact, the major portion of Revelation is yet to be fulfilled prophecy. And so verse one, when he, the lamb, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about, half an hour. Now, I am not going to be one of those pastors who suggest that that means there were no women there. (laughs) See, I mean, there are pastors who do that, and that is just cruel and terrible. It's one of those things, if you're a pastor, you have to say that. It's the law, you know, otherwise. (laughs) Ari Trotter writes, Whereas Jesus was referred to as a lamb once in the Old Testament, twice in the Gospels, and once in the Epistles, he is referred to as the lamb 28 times in the book of the Revelation. We have to conclude that it is a book of salvation available to the very end. The most awful judgments are about to be described. They are sent and meant to be evangelistic. God offers salvation to the very end. The Revelation is a masterpiece of storytelling, started with a solid outline in chapter 1. John was told, write down what you have seen, what is, and what is going to happen after this. What John saw was a vision of the risen Christ in chapter 1. What is refers to the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. What is going to happen is the future from chapter 4 until the end of the book. We saw Jesus, looking like the lamb, take a seven-sealed scroll from God the Father. The scroll is the operational plan for the seven-year tribulation. As Jesus opens the seals, uh, you follow the action on the earth. The Lord opened six of the seals in chapter 6. Before opening the seventh seal, chapter 7 gave us a flashback and a flash forward. And that is how it's going to be from this point on. The seventh seal will be opened and we will have lots of flashing back and forward through the great tribulation. That's how the story is going to be told. And so it is chronological. It is linear if you follow the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. But in between those, there's a lot of information that bounces back and forth. And so it's just great storytelling. Here, heaven observes a moment of silence. There's a hushed expectancy. Do you hear that? I don't hear anything. It's the deep breath before the plunge. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Seven angels take their assigned places. When the seventh seal is opened, the seven angels will blow their trumpets in succession. The seventh trumpet releases seven angels to pour out seven bowls in succession upon those who dwell on the earth. Now, we think of trumpets as musical instruments primarily, but trumpets played a major part in the national life of Israel, used in ceremonial processions, in assembling people for war, for journeys during feasts, and in announcing the new year. And so trumpets had a, a, a big role in just the national uh, way of life for Israel. Verse 3, then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. The silence continues as another angel performs his role in this drama. He has in some form the prayers of all the saints. Now, not the prayers of all the saints from all time, not necessary. We take this to mean the saints of the great tribulation. We met an innumerable company of them in chapter seven as a flash forward to the end of the tribulation. Uh, and so we're talking about tribulation saints and their prayers. Maybe they are audio recordings. Why not? Imagine the storage capacity in heaven's cloud. Did you ever get those notices? Your cloud is almost full. I got that the other day. I don't know what I'm saving in the cloud that is wiping out. But, you know, they, then you got to pay more for a cloud storage. And, um, but, you know, in heaven, storage isn't a problem. I mean, they literally could have all of your prayers uh, stored up, and certainly the prayers of the Great Tribulation. That's probably only uh, a quadrillion prayers. You know, that's nothing as far as that, that's on one hard drive in heaven. But anyway, incense enhances their prayers. It gives them a pleasing fragrance before the throne of God. Now, if you notice carefully, God adds the incense. If you want to burn incense to give your home a pleasing aroma, go for it. If you want to burn incense to enhance your prayers, don't. God isn't looking for you to add the incense. He'll do it. When I was in junior high and my life went south, uh, I used to, you know, it was all the meditation stuff and, and Nehru jackets and the Beatles had gone to see Mahatma, Mahatma, Runda, Bunda and, and uh, whoever those yogis were. And I remember I had a little uh, a Buddha a little gold Buddha about that big, and it came apart, and you would burn the incense inside of it, you know. And I would lay there in my room. Back then, pop tops used to come off of cans. Do you remember that? And you could make like a curtain of pop tops from your again. So I had my pop top curtain and my my strobe light and my in- infrared light, and I used to lay there listening to Inagata Devita over and over and over again. <laughs> it's amazing that I'm sane, but anyway. Um, Uh, you know, everybody was trying to be mystical. We need always to resist our natural tendency to think that being mystical is being spiritual. Quite the opposite is true. The more we add ritual to our walk with Jesus, the more distance we create between he and us. The nation of Israel had quite a ritualistic religion in order to approach the Lord through altars and in the holy place and in the holy of holies. When Jesus died on the cross... One of the things, one of the marvelous things that happened is that the veil in the temple that separated mankind from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom, signifying that the way into God's presence was now open without ritual. Now, the Jews somehow got that thing repaired and went right back to their ritual. But that's not what we want to do. We don't want to put things between us and the Lord. I know sometimes, you know, you, you can't shake the feeling. You think, is this irreverent? Are we too familiar with God? And then you get on the internet, and you read lots of articles about we've become too familiar with God. We don't honor him enough. We don't show him the worth, uh, you know, that that it requires and all that. And I understand. There, there, Obviously, there there is irreverence. I come right up to the edge of it, you know. I mean, uh, but... Uh, I guess that wasn't funny. But anyway, uh, you can be irreverent, but, but people want to, th- it's in our nature to th- because we like works-oriented religion rather than a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, we want to add stuff. And so, you know, liturgy, we want to have something more liturgical, more, you know, uh, what Sunday is this? What should we be celebrating this Sunday on the church calendar? And what are the readings for this? And what did the early church do, the medieval church? And and what about uh, the Stations of the Cross has become popular at Protestant churches now? I don't know if you know that or not. If you're Catholic, you know the Stations of the Cross, right? They're in every Catholic church. It's where it follows Jesus through uh, the Via Dolorosa and all that. It's very Catholic, very iconic uh, you know and so Protestants say hey we like that let's do that and and so but all of this stuff it distances you from the Lord you think I have to do that I have to kneel and pray here in order to get closer to the Lord and, and um, that to me is irreverent because Jesus died to set us free from all that and now he calls us what his friends and so yes we can be irreverent but not because we're casual uh, we we just love to have a relationship with Jesus Christ uh, the way that he designed it and not the way men have designed it. Being in Christ is not meant to be a long-distance relationship. Some of you are in or have been in long-distance relationships, right? You're in high school, you get your high school sweetheart, and then they accept college in, you know, Massachusetts, and you find out that long-term relationships are tough. But then we look at the Lord and we say, well, Lord, we'd like to have more of a long-term, long-distance relationship with you. We're, I'm, I have to go to this prayer labyrinth or I have to do this or that before I can really come into your presence. It's it's not what the Lord has for us. And verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Now, we previously were introduced to a group of saints holding a prayer meeting in heaven. The saints alive on earth are their fellow servants and their brethren. Together, their prayers rise with the added incense to the throne. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. The martyrs in chapter six asked, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Their prayers stoked the fire on the altar. And so this is all a great drama, wonderful scene that is being played out in heaven in the future. And and very highly choreographed, you might say, all very visual. Noises abruptly break the silence in heaven. Thunders and lightnings and an earthquake alert those who dwell on the earth that the great second half of the great tribulation has come. You know how many warning systems we have now, right? Don't we have a lot of warning? We have amber alerts uh, down in. Uh, we have fire alerts. You know, if you have to evacuate. Back in the good old days, you didn't know, you know, policemen and firemen had to go door to door to evacuate you. Uh, and I remember fires we were involved in in Southern California. Um, you know, you, you never knew when to evacuate or when not to a- until they came around. It was, it was labor intensive. Now we have all kinds of warning systems. Well, this is going to be a heavenly warning system. All of a sudden, there's going to be thunders and lightnings and an earthquake all over the earth warning that the second half of the great tribulation has come. It's not uncommon to refer to the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation as the great tribulation. Okay, so as the truth is the first 1,260 days aren't near as bad as the last. Uh, And so some people say, well, you know, the great tribulation, sure, the church will be kept out of that, but we'll be in the tribulation. We'll, We'll be there for the first three and a half years. No, we won't. Because if we're there at all, we will know when the Lord is coming for us in the rapture. We'll know the exact date. We can calculate it or we'd be pretty close. And the rapture is always an imminent event. It could happen at any time. So you can call it the tribulation. You can call it the great tribulation. You can say the last three and a half years is the great tribulation. There's about 25 names for the great tribulation in the Bible, including the time of Jacob's trouble. So don't let anybody like, you know, befuddle you by saying that we don't know what we're talking about when we talk about the great tribulation. Uh, It's all the same. It all adds up to the seven years. It is that time of trouble that the world has never experienced nor ever will again. And yes, the end of it is going to be worse than the first. The seventh seal is like a director shouting action. It'll be a live one-take performance. It is carefully blocked and scripted. The church age in which we live, it's every bit as dramatic if you think about it. We are to live in the any moment return of Jesus to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers. Expectancy ought to build with each passing moment. I mean, a lot of you feel this. You, you see what's happening in the world today. You see what's happening in our own great nation and you think, even so come Lord Jesus. I mean, and a lot of people talk to me and they say, hey, it can't be much longer. I know we can't set dates, and we don't know when it's going to be, and it's always imminent, but how long can it be from this point with everything that's happening? We, too, are going to be gathered by a trumpet call, the last trumpet of the church age. While waiting, we are compared in the Bible to a bride, a soldier, a farmer, a builder, an athlete, a flock, a body with Jesus as its head, servants, and a steward. We are all of these at once in the Christian life. Each of those roles has its own set of adventures and challenges, and each role helps us to understand different aspects of what it means to be loved, protected, and preserved by Jesus. Secondly, you observe the scourging in verses 6 through 13. The opening of the first five seals followed a slow pace over the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. The opening of the sixth seal was like a movie preview. There we saw, and I quote, a great earthquake, sun becoming black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This, uh, Obviously, these are the last of the last day's events, the, the, the very end. And so that seal is showing us a preview of everything that will happen during that time. And These uh, first five seals relate primarily to the first half of the Great Tribulation. The sixth seal is a preview of the seventh, and the seventh is c- uh, containing the trumpets and the bowls that show you the action in the end. This is the time when Jesus says it's like a woman in labor. It starts off slowly, and then it intensifies until the pain is unbearable, uh, until delivery comes. And so... Uh, That's kind of where we're headed with this. So verse six, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound themselves. I got to thinking if angels need to prepare for service, how much more do we? I mean, they serve God perfectly and are in a place where they really can't do anything wrong and yet they prepared. On one hand, we can already do all things through Jesus who strengthens us. Everything we are commanded to do in the Bible, we are already enabled to do by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's important that we realize that. That's why we lack victory and we don't, have, uh, we don't feel like overcomers because we maybe look to somebody else in the church or somebody, other Christian that we know, we think, well, that, that person is spiritual and I'm not because I've only been saved 10 minutes or 10 years. I don't know as much. I, 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 you know, I, I need more preparation. But the Lord says, when you were saved, you were given God the Holy Spirit to indwell you. And my commands are enabled by his power within you if you will simply yield to them. So it's true, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. John says, if you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar. But he also says you shouldn't sin, indicating that you can't use as an excuse, I'm just not mature enough or I don't know enough. It's not what you know, it's who you know and who's on board. And that's the Holy Spirit. And so if you're struggling with something, uh, Start believing that you can overcome it because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. On the other hand, we are to read the word, we're to pray. The Lord wants us in fellowship with other believers and we should tell others that Jesus died and rose from the dead to save them. In that way, we discover good works that God has before ordained for us to accomplish in his empowering. And so we do have a blessed, joyful responsibility to grow in the Lord. And, and uh, we want to do that, but we don't get, have to grow to a certain point to be able to overcome sin and be conquerors. Uh, so I hope you understand that. Verse seven, the first angel sounded. And hail, if I wanted to do that. Actually, I should have. We have a shofar here. You know, they're remarkably hard to blow. Uh, but uh, I've been practicing for years and I just can't get it. But anyway, this first angel sounded. Fire and hail mingled with blood. Were thrown down to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The first four trumpet blasts are similar in that they each use the natural world against those who inhabit the earth. The final three trumpets will release demonic enemies. I can't wait to read about it, I mean. In keeping with my constantly reminding us that the Revelation is not apocalyptic literature. Commentator J.A. Seiss wrote this, the truth is if earth, trees, and grass do not mean earth, trees, and grass, no man can tell what they mean. Letting go the literal signification of the record, we launch out upon an endless sea of sheer conjecture. A lot of churches, a lot of Christians don't bother with the revelation of Jesus Christ because they believe it's apocalyptic and can mean anything and so doesn't mean anything and so they don't have to read it or study it and we're finding that's not the truth when he talks about the grass here he means grass trees seas oceans water those kinds of things it's literal and so a mighty hailstorm a real one accompanied by some sort of fire rains down from heaven mingled with blood is just frightening it could be the carnage from the deaths of men on the earth as they are caught up in the storm it may be blood just accompanying the storm you know how, what is it about, in California anyway, what is it about hail that gets everybody so excited? You know, you sit in there, maybe at your office, and you look outside, and all of a sudden you hear, it's hailing, is it hailing where you are? Yeah, it just started, wow. And then you start wondering how big it's going to get. And is there, should you put your car in the garage, you know, and that kind of, and you, you Google hail. You find out that, the record is like 50 pounds or something like that. And you're like, hey, are you still alive? You know, and so in the tribulation, we won't be here, you know, the church, but people will be here. Hey, is hail with fires, (laughs) you know, coming down from heaven on you? I'm on fire. I mean, it'd be awful. It's terrible. Yeah, and it's bloody here too. I mean, this is terrible. There are also gonna be massive fires on the earth as a result of this. Judgment In chapter 11, you'll learn that there's been a three and a half year drought on the earth providing ample fuel for fire. And a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. It's going to be awful. Verse eight, then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. It isn't a mountain that is thrown down. It's like a great mountain. And so for all its literalness, we talk about the revelation being literal when it's not literal. It tells you, it says something like a great mountain. It it does. It isn't Rushmore, you know, coming down into the, uh, you know, it isn't the Himalayas or anything. It's something like that. It's a giant solid mass that will hit the earth surrounded by combustible gases, which ignite as it enters the earth's atmosphere. It impacts one of the oceans and a third of the sea becomes blood. Now, We, because we have rational scientific minds, we start thinking, well, how does that really work out? And the truth is, we don't have to discover the exact mechanisms that cause these effects or how the sea becomes blood. It isn't on us to prove that these things are scientifically possible because they're supernatural. God is bringing them. If you like that kind of stuff, there's nothing wrong with it, but you should pick up the book, The Revelation Record by Dr. Henry Morris. He's a Christian creation scientist, and um, he has lots of different, uh, really wonderful thoughts about how these things work out scientifically. Uh, But, you know, um, you guys, I don't know if you remember when Mount St. Helens blew its top. Uh, Science changed that day in just a few minutes because a lot of things happened that they couldn't have predicted and that they'd never seen before. Uh, I recall them talking about how things fossilized within seconds because of the force of that blast. So, you know, when I, you grow up in school and they say, oh, it takes millions of years for fossils to form, and those lower and you know, and all this stuff. And uh, you think, oh, okay, evolution. And they have fossils immediately because of the disaster uh, and, and lots of other things. And so you can't always predict exactly what would happen if hail, like fire, hit the earth all at once. Uh, And at the end, we're going to see that God is bringing these as supernatural judgments. They're not natural at all. There are more than a few similarities between the seven trumpet judgments and the ten plagues in Egypt uh, in the Old Testament. Water turning to blood is one of them. It caused one scholar to say the trumpet and bowl judgments intentionally parallel the ten plagues of Egypt. The ten plagues are prototypes of the trumpets and the bowls, providing a framework to understand them. Once again... We take the 10 plagues to be literal, do we not? I mean, when we studied that, we thought, oh, the water turned to blood. It wasn't symbolic blood. It wasn't, uh, you know, that Moses saw red because he was angry or anything like that. The the Nile turned to blood. Why would the revelation be non-literal if what it draws from is literal? Why suddenly does it become an allegory when everything else is real? So the 10 plagues occurred just before Israel's exodus from Egypt to the promised land serves as a foreshadowing of the exodus of God's people through the great tribulation into the kingdom of heaven on earth. So there are lots of parallels if you want to study that. Uh, Verse nine, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Notice the precision measurements. It's one third, no more, no less. It shows that these are carefully calculated judgments sent by God, not simply nature gone bad or human beings ruining the environment. This is not global warming or any such thing folks suggest today. A lot of people will read the Revelation and, and use it as a warning that if we don't quit creating plastic, the world is going to you know, be destroyed. Or if we don't uh, get rid of this or get rid of that. And that's not it at all. These are divine judgments using nature against mankind. In apocalyptic films, there's always that one guy. He's usually a drunken, disgraced scientist who discovers the pattern to what is occurring. And then he shares that and we're able to overcome it. This ratio cannot be a coincidence and so scientists will discover it. Or will they? Non-believing scientists can be gullible. Many evolutionary scientists now subscribe to what we call the X-Men theory of evolution. Since there are no transitional forms, right, So you you understand evolution that, you know, one cell more than then, you know, the frog eventually or the amphibian comes out and he's a reptile and pretty soon you have a monkey and then us, Uh, you know, one species to the next. There aren't any in-between species. There's nobody, there's no monkey turning into a man. Not, I mean, you know, not really. I mean, but you, you understand what I mean. So, and so it's a problem for evolution. Darwin said we'd find transitional species, and we never did. We never have. We never will. And so now these guys, they want to hold on to it. They say, here's what happens. I'll tell you what happens. All of a sudden, for no reason whatsoever, an entire generation will just leap forward into evolution. Wow. Maybe you're pregnant right now with your first child. It could be magneto. Hopefully it's one of the good X-Men, maybe Wolverine and not, you know, uh, <laughs> whatever. But uh, th- this, is, this is what scientists believe now, uh, and, and it's crazy. Verse 10, then the third angel sounded. A great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made Bitter. Another object strikes the earth. It's called a star, but it's described as burning like a torch. That's helpful because uh, the Greek squad says that it is a phrase often used in Greek writing to describe a meteor. Or it might be God's version of the Death Star, made just for this occasion. As it strikes the atmosphere, it scatters all over the planet, and it affects the Earth's freshwater rivers and the springs from which they flow. Now, wormwood, we like to name everything. They name it wormwood. It's a plant with a bitter taste appearing in several varieties in Israel. Jeremiah frequently referred to wormwood as a symbol of divine discipline. Uh, Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. This is more than an eclipse The light from these heavenly bodies is reduced by a factor of one-third. It'll result in, obviously, vast temperature problems and meteorological upsets and climate change. Any doubt you may have that this is supernatural and not mankind ruining the earth is now removed. In verse 13, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. The remaining trumpet blasts, three of them, have the word woe attached to them. That is a special word in the Bible. It's used as an exclamation of judgment upon God's enemies. When God says woe on you, those who dwell on the earth ought to respond, woe is me, and repent. It means that these last three blasts are going to be terrifying. Weird but true fact, how many of you in your Bible, instead of angel, it says eagle? Raise your hand if your Bible says eagle. It is eagle. That's the better translation. I, I think the guys who translated the Bible a long time ago said, yeah, eagles don't talk, so it must be an angel. I prefer to think of it as an eagle. Could be a descendant of Guahir, the wind lord, from Lord of the Rings, right? Or Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. He's probably not fierce enough And I'm not sure if he is one of the approved Muppets. You know, the Muppets have gone through lots of transition lately with the politically correct society in which we live. Not all the Muppets are good for your kids anymore. And I'm not sure if Sam makes it. But uh, anyway, animals have talked in Scripture. Obviously, people say, oh, yeah, obviously the serpent talked to Eve in the Garden of Eden. She didn't think it was strange. Would you think it was strange if you were walking in your garden and a serpent started talking to you? I hope so. She didn't think it was strange. She had a nice conversation. But my favorite one is uh, Balaam. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. His donkey spoke to him, and they had a really lengthy conversation. Balaam was on his way to disobey the Lord, and the Lord sent an angel with a drawn sword to kill him. Uh, Balaam couldn't see it, but his donkey could. And so the donkey kept stopping and crushing Balaam into the uh, you know. Uh, cliff or whatever. So finally, Balaam couldn't take it anymore. He got off and he started whipping and yelling at his donkey. And the donkey turned around and said, what are you doing? Haven't I been a good donkey to you? Don't you see what's happening? And and Balaam talked to him. They had a really lengthy conversation. Uh, So uh, apparently, you know, animals can talk uh, when God wants them to. Add to that, we know that all dogs go to heaven. Well, your kids think so, right? Are you lying to your kids or what? I mean, mommy, did Blackie go to heaven? No. Let me explain the uh, tripartite uh, spirit-soul-body theory to you. And says That's not exactly a lie. It's just not the truth. The inhabitants of the earth are warned because God is not willing any of them perish. Everyone everywhere will hear this warning from heaven, Everyone everywhere will he- have an opportunity to repent. It's as if you're, the entire planet on their cell phones got a warning that says, this is the great tribulation. Time is running out for you to repent and be saved. And uh, whether they heed it or not uh, is another story. We understand the phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, to be a technical phrase describing nonbelievers on the earth who up to that point have deliberately rejected salvation and prefer this world over heaven for their home they will be without excuse. Coming on these judgments, Pastor David Guzik writes, God attacks all the ordinary means of subsistence, such as food and water, and he attacks all the ordinary means of comfort and knowledge, such as light and the regular rhythm of days. Man has come to see these aspects of the created order as impersonal, perpetual forces. During the Great Tribulation, God proclaims his lordship through their agonizing disruption. God strikes one-third, It's been said that he spares more than he strikes. Judgment is inevitable. The wages of sin is death. But in his divine wrath, God remembers mercy. Men still have the opportunity to repent. The Lord will scourge the earth ahead of the second coming of Jesus, preparing it for him. Our God saves any and all who call upon his name, trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. One commentator put it like this. The Lord delights in saving people and is committed to doing that. Judgment is not what he delights in, but rather the regeneration of lost people. The great tribulation, while having terrible judgments, is primarily a time for salvation. And so whenever we think of this terrible time of trouble, with its undeniably awful suffering, is God trying to reach man in a language that maybe he'll understand? Right now, we're trying to reach mankind through grace, mercy, love, compassion. Christians are willing to die in place of others so that they can see the gospel at work. I mean, it's, you know, it's, Jesus loves you. Will you get saved? Yeah, I don't need that. And so God said, well, okay, I'm going to take my church out. And I'm going to do something a little bit different. It's going to start off real slow to give you a chance to catch up. But I'm going to throw out these judgments, giving you that language that you might understand. Kind of like a severe discipline. But still, reaching out, always reaching out. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're here to get saved. And we pray that you would open your heart and receive the Lord. Let's pray.